Greetings, explorers. We're going to depart from our standard fare this week on Complexity Podcast and take you on a dangerous journey into the unmapped zone, a thought experiment from the Santa Fe Institute's Interplanetary Project. The Interplanetary Festival had to take a year off due to the pandemic, but we're keeping the conversation lively with a number of online initiatives, one of which is the new podcast Alien Crash Site, hosted by Interplanetary Festival director Caitlin McShay. In this special teaser episode, we've picked some appetizing clips from the first three episodes of Alien Crash Site with guests David Krakauer, president of SFI, Kate Green, former laser physicist turned author and essayist, who was selected for a Mars simulation on Mauna Loa, and two-time Olympic gold medalist decathlete Ashton Eaton, all three of which are Interplanetary Festival veterans, whose work you can find at interplanetaryfest.org, or by looking up their panel discussions from 2018 and 2019 on SFI's YouTube channel. But today we get a very different glimpse of their intelligence and creative imaginations as we invite them to speculate about what fantastical high technologies they might wish to discover inside the detritus left by an alien visitation. Because this is Complexity Podcast, I feel like I would be remiss without pointing you to at least a few excellent scientific papers in the ballpark of these speculative exercises. So linked in the show notes to this episode, you will find a bouquet of publications, including a few I've brought up on this show before, including The Physical Limits of Communication, or Why Any Sufficiently Advanced Technology is Indistinguishable from Noise, The Information Theory of Individuality, and Agnostic Approaches to Extant Life Detection, as well as links to a few other relevant Complexity Podcast episodes and an essay from One Zero at Medium, citing the work of Jeffrey West on why life on other planets will resemble ours, and the YouTube playlist for all of our videos from the Interplanetary Project. If you enjoy what you hear in this episode and you want to tune in for more, then surf over to aliencrashsite.org. And keep your finger on the trigger to subscribe to the Alien Crash Site podcast wherever you are hopefully already subscribed to Complexity. Thank you for letting us be your guides into the dangers and possibilities of the unknown. And tune in next week when Complexity Podcast interviews acclaimed SFI physicist David Wolpert about how No matter which roadside picnic you may be stopped at, there truly is no such thing as a free lunch.
Imagine that you stumble onto an alien vessel and you discover an artifact of extraterrestrial provenance. And the key is that this discovery could change everything. By analyzing this, by studying this, whatever that object was, you might come to an understanding that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And so that's the idea. And what are these artifacts? And that's, I guess the series is an effort, an attempt to ask people what their ultimate alien crash site artifact would be, how it would work, how it would change everything, and discuss, you know, this, what does that mean in the broader context of our stage of technological evolution, right? And it could be anything, it could be a pencil, it could be a piece of chalk, it could be something very enigmatic. And, and that's the basic idea. And so, but that idea, I think, stems from this 70s Soviet sci-fi novel, The Roadside Picnic by the Strugatsky Brothers. And I think that's important to mention because there's a great fear, risk. There's, it's not like you just stumble upon this lovely meadow and you find things that change the planet. Like, you could die. <laughs> you could yeah. dissolve. Yes, exactly. No, that's right. So, yes, Stalker, uh, which, of course, is the film by Tarkovsky, based on the Strugatsky brothers' roadside picnic. The idea of roadside picnic is that there has been some event, some visitation, a crash perhaps, uh, or a visit. And a series of zones on the planet, six of them, have somehow been infected by some presence or some technology. And the governments of the world have decreed that this should be non-visitable, that it should be avoided. And they're right because it's full of dangers and traps, but it's also full of objects which seem to be miraculous or purported to be miraculous. And there are figures who enter into these areas, these zones, illegally in search of artifacts which they can then sell. Mm -hmm. And they have all sorts of horrible names and they can turn you into slime and God knows what. And the most sought after of all artifacts is this golden sphere. And the golden sphere is an artifact that it is believed gives you some access to some universal knowledge. And what slowly dawns on you over the course of time is it's not clear precisely what this is, right? In other words, why does this place exist? What, what happened? What is this technology? How do you understand it? And there's a kind of a twist without giving anything away. And the Strugansky brothers suggest that actually what we consider these super advanced technologies were actually just litter or the detritus of a picnic, right, that aliens took where they sort of stopped off on Earth. Not necessarily, I think they did it by mistake. They had to go to the toilet or something. Precisely. <laughs> they had a bit of a picnic and they left all this stuff behind, which to us, of course, seems miraculous. So it's a bit of a twist that what one civilization might consider earth-shatteringly, planet-shatteringly advanced, to another civilization is just its garbage. And that was always a very interesting idea. I think that the idea that people could translate human signals is perhaps a bit naive. Right? That, that's, again, what I think Lem is doing in his master's voice. Mm -hmm. He's saying, you're never going to understand it. And it's not possible. Without having all of the physical embodiment and reference, 
which gives you this kind of prior information upon which you base an interpretation. Without any of that, it's meaningless. It's just ones and zeros. It could be constructed in any way you like. And you, you know, it's a little bit like it's very interesting in in antiquity, pre-Darwinian world, when the Greeks and the Romans dug up fossils. You know, what did they do? I mean, it's like there are these giants. So what? Okay, so what did they do? So. Uh, <laughs> In, in, it's interesting, right? In, in China, they made dragons out of them, which is great. But in the Christian West, they assembled dinosaur bones into giant humans. So it's like Adam and Eve. It's like, here, here they are. So that's what you do, right? You, you interpret things according to your pre-existing beliefs and knowledge, however silly that is. No, I think that's great. Um, I stumbled upon a joke about the, the hubris of the human being in our sending of the golden record. And the joke is that our like first contact with the universe was to send unsolicited nudes, a mixtape, and directions back home. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so good. Yeah, that's right. Hilarious. Primitive society. On the one hand, I like this idea of discovering something extraordinarily modest, but which is incontrovertibly revolutionary. And there's a wonderful physicist who worked at IBM, Charlie Bennett, and Bennett makes this point that if you travel to the far ends of the universe and you arrive on a planet and you discovered a safety pin, that's all you would need, right? It's like, it's a very simple object, but what kind of civilization is required to make a safety pin, right? So it has to have metallurgy and manufacturing and nappies or whatever it has. And so, or in my case, you'd go that far and you discover a Rubik's cube. Like, <laughs> yes. like, no way. So I think the object doesn't have to be particularly impressive, but it has to imply the existence of, of a certain kind of culture to be made. Actually, there's a name for this called Gutman scaling, or implicational scaling, that um, there are certain objects that presuppose the existence of prior objects. For example, electricity doesn't exist in any society that doesn't also have fire. How are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. I'm, in, I'm living in 2020 as you are. <laughs> yeah, so good, um, maybe more relative than ever. <laughs> totally. Um, it's funny too, I was thinking about uh, how 2020 makes me and I think most everyone else a perfect audience for your essays because it's like the closest thing to a Mars simulation that any ordinary American is going to experience. Yeah, it was really strange to uh, reread some of them and, and recognize um, how similar an experience it was, especially in the early days and, yeah. and like last spring, just knowing that so many of us were going to be holed up and not really able to go outside without wearing protective equipment, you know, this was... Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that it was it was very strange kind of deja vu that I never could have anticipated. Was there any element of your time in this simulation that considered the possibility of like discovering life on Mars or, I don't know, was there any extracurricular con like considerations between your crew members or it was that kind of so far outside the possibility? Well, I mean, we didn't, uh, okay, hold on, let me think about that for a second. One of the cool things that um, some of my crew members did that I didn't do, I didn't go on this EVA, but uh, there was 
a very exciting expedition to one of the um, vents in the volcano that was nearby and lower down a camera into that vent. So like kind of standing one person on one side of the caldera, then another on on the other side, and with a rope in between them and a camera in the middle and lowering this down and seeing as you go lower and lower that vegetation shows up. And you're actually seeing this this dry, rocky uh, landscape sort of like transition into a like some kind of rainforest that, you know, there are ferns down there. And so that, I mean, it just makes you think about what is actually going on in the caves of Mars, you know, and subsurface Martian activity is like very real in terms of the lakes that were just discovered. I mean, we have a lot of potential for um, some pretty exciting discoveries on Mars when it comes to life or just, you know, just I think that I think that if you go a little bit deeper than the surface of Mars, you're going to find some pretty cool stuff. And so we were simulating that in a way by lowering this camera down into this volcano and just seeing that the um, ecosystem completely changed, you know. And right. here, here was this like lush, verdant part of the world that wasn't accessible to us here, like on on the rocky surface, of right, Mars. buried under this explosive, dangerous, and completely right. dried. Yeah. I mean, you get different gases, you get a completely different temperature environment. I mean, everything's different down there. So why wouldn't that be similar on Mars? That's wild. So the idea, I think, is to kind of consider we live in this post-visitation world, and at the risk of all of the physical dangers that become of the stalkers or imprisonment or even death, what object might you risk your life for uh, in an effort to uncover in the zone, recover from the zone, maybe decrypt and utilize? So that's the basic premise. It can't just be an easy grab. It can't just be an easy technology transfer. (laughs) Right, exactly. We don't have the universal dongle or whatever. It has to be some sort of adventure uh, to retrieve it with some amount of danger, which makes it worth so much. So, yeah, Yeah. what what did did other people say? In, In terms of kind of context from Roadside Picnic, it's funny, actually, the things that the Institute or the stalkers have been able to retrofit to their cars or have been able to figure out at least some new function for right. are things that exist in multiples. So mm-hmm. there is this, there's this item at the end that the protagonist read is after that's called the Golden Sphere. Yeah. And um, it's, it's thought to grant the finder of it any one wish. Wow. Who knows if that's the case, but it's a yeah. similar, instead of having to come up with the device or the object itself, you could say, bring me an Ansible that we understand, something like that. Yeah. But there's only one, and it's through a very dangerous route. You almost have to sacrifice a partner in order to like satisfy the zone to get to it. Wow. But these bracelets and the like sparks and the empties or all of these other things, which we're closer to understanding, we're able to because we have multiples. So we can risk the reverse engineering. But there's this fragility, like a bomb, when you want to, if you got the golden sphere, you'd almost never want to touch it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I would be, I'd be super scared to, to screw it up. <laughs> I feel like people would just kind of stare at it. And then at some point it's like, well, we got to, got to take the shell off and, and look at the inside. But yeah, there's, I mean, there's so many risks with all of this. Right. Uh, yeah. It's almost like 
when we go back in the past and we find fossils, right? You just, there's so much information there that you don't want to lose, even in the slight brushing um, of something you, you could lose, you know, uh, the, the human history, really. Right. Do you think if you entered the zone, would you do so as a criminal stalker or on behalf of the Institute? Ooh, yeah, okay. I think I would want to do it as a criminal stalker <laughs> for the reasons of, you know, I think having a little bit more freedom and not necessarily having to report what I find, but I think I would practically like actually do it uh, for the Institute and through the right path. Um, yeah. So I, I think it would just be something where it's like, yeah, this seems like the right thing to do. You know, I, I kind of always try to err on that. <laughs> yeah. um, but I mean, I don't know. I think, it depends. There's always um, this interplay between institutions, uh, you know, not, not to throw anything at the, the Santa Fe Institute, but I actually don't think they, they hold to this, but institutions in general are typically slower, right, than the, like, fast individual or, or uh, less risk-averse thing. So institutions, like, have processes and, and forms to sign, and risks to consider to the to the people who are involved in la la la, whereas somebody else is just like in out, you know, it's like guerrilla warfare or whatever. So I think that'd be the only downside to an institute. It'd be like, look, there's treasure down there, man. We gotta go get it. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, but we have to catalog and this and that. It's just like, no, forget all that protocol. Yeah. No, actually, I think that's a really good point. If you think about institutions in terms of what they're after, especially if it was this institute that might be able to decode, you essentially want to take in the greatest minds, the most capable of doing so, but then you bind them with bureaucracy and protocol and whatnot. And it's sure. Meanwhile, it's the mavericks and the rogues and the renegades that are running around doing the scary work. I, of course, I mean, it has trade-offs, but um, that's the, the kind of tragic possibility in this. I think I that... Think so most definitely be found by an independent stalker, the criminal kind. But I think so. I mean, was, um, you know, exchange, then it, who knows? Yeah. I think about uh, the movie Contact comes to mind. Yeah. You know, where, yeah. So basically they, they get these plans to build a, you know, time machine or wormhole thing. And <laughs> the technical term. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, so the government or whatever, like, gets their hands on it. And it's like, we shouldn't do this. And then Jodie Foster is like, no, we need to do it. And so eventually they do it. And then there's just like, it's just a whole long process. And you're like getting over human kind of inertia of the system to do it. Uh, and then I guess it fails. But then this like private person built their own. It's just like, screw it. And so and that was the one that, you know, they ended up working and uh, doing the whole deal. So uh, I think that's like a good, good example of how we might get something from beyond and just like really uh, hamstring ourselves as far as you know knowledge advancement or whatever totally i think that's a really good example too of um the care we have to take in the way we approach totally unfamiliar things mm -hmm. so we got this you know these plans or whatever and i think it was exactly like you said some private japanese country or something duplicated the plans and had mm -hmm. they not someone who was afraid of change literally sabotaged the whole mission, like threw a flag or something at it. That's right. That's right. It was, it, was like super fragile. it was sabotaged by someone who was afraid of the unfamiliarity. Yeah. Yeah. So to maybe harness ourselves a little further in protection against that would be good in this endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for listening. 
For more from SFI's new Alien Crash Site podcast, go to aliencrashsite.org or subscribe to us on YouTube. If you value our research and communication efforts, consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash podcast give. And stay safe out there.